Hello, my name is Katherine Moore, social worker, mom, coffee lover, and founder of Social Workers Rise, where we inspire social workers to connect, expand their knowledge, and change more lives than they ever thought possible. I'm so excited you found my podcast. We will talk everything social work on every level from micro to macro. We will hear the stories of social workers who are doing big things, learn new skills, and most importantly, give you actionable steps to make a difference today. Let's go. Before we hop into this episode, I want to share a brand new resource with you. As social workers and mental health professionals, we know that clinical supervision is vital to the service of our clients. But traditionally, it's been very difficult to find clinical supervision that's a good fit outside of your job. Or as a clinical supervisor, it's been really challenging to connect with new professionals who are looking for your unique skill set that you bring to supervision. So there is a new resource that I'm so excited to share with you. The Clinical Supervisor Directory is coming very, very soon, and it is the go-to place for clinical supervision. Definitely get on the interest list now so you don't miss any updates on this launch. The link is in the show notes. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Amanda. Welcome back. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yes, yes, me too. I'm glad to have you. Um, So we talked about so many good things last week, like blew my mind. Thank you so much. Um, So this week, I really want to know, you know, with all of these things going on and starting the business, did you ever feel a sense of imposter syndrome doing this? Let's think. So, yeah, I feel like the point when I really felt the imposter syndrome, I'd say, was when the test got changed back in around, I guess, right before you would have taken it, 2015, I would say it was. I don't know if you remember, but the the test got changed and the law and ethics got created and the MFT clinical vignette portion changed. And so I had to redo the tests, redo the program. And what I realized was that the first time I did it, I was driven so much by passion and I had just been teaching the, the, the materials um, for Grossman. Everything was so fresh. I had recently taken the test that I wasn't in the same headspace. And I also am the kind of person that is I'm much more effective communicator when I'm spontaneous I don't type out my whole lectures or anything like that when I'm teaching. Uh, I mean, now these days, if I've done some speaking and stuff, I do have made efforts to write out more, but I'm much more comfortable having the points that I want to make in my mind and then being alive in the moment and and sharing it in a more um, kind of authentic, spontaneous way. Well, the problem with that is (laughs) I I, I legitimately couldn't remember what I said on the recording. So I had to have the test transcribed. I had to have my whole program transcribed so that I could even see what I said about each thing. 
to then just, you know, have to rework it to create a new thing. Uh, but I had a lot of anxiety. I mean, um, when that happened, when the tests were changing, we didn't know exactly what they were going to look like, but they knew it was going to change. At that point, my, my husband was working for the company as the finance guy. And I had these coaches on staff, some of them part-time, some of them full-time and, uh, and obviously me. And so my business was supporting my family and parts of other families. And so there, the pressure was different than it was when I was starting and there was no pressure. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a lot of pressure. And I have to say that it gives me a deeper appreciation for people who have jobs that are high pressure. Um, Cause that's an intense thing to have. And I think in the field of social work and, and therapy, we don't have the same kind of pressures that people in other, other fields, business fields have. And obviously we're probably drawn to our career path because of that and, and them for, for that reason. But um, yes, I was very much uh, in a state of panic and, felt like I, you know, was a fraud that I, you know, doubted myself. And, um, and when people say, Oh, you deserve, you know, you, you work so hard, you deserve your success. I think the first time around, no, like I just joke, I'm like, I just bought a microphone from Amazon and I just started talking into it. But the second <laughs> go around when we had to redo the test, that was like pulling teeth. It was mm-hmm. so hard. And we actually expanded out um, doing more, um, audio rationales uh, than we had before. And I, I so I did like a cup, I, 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 probably more for the MFT. I remember that one I remember because I went up and Ostia helped me. And I, um, <laughs> it's so much thinking power to, to have written questions and then to, to sit and think, to explain them. And at the time too, I, w- I didn't have anyone with me. And now I know that if I'm going to do recordings, I have to have somebody sitting with me or like you or we're on the phone and we're talking like going, <laughs> talking to myself in a room to a microphone is completely crazy making. It really is really an <laughs> odd, an odd thing to not have any kind of feedback or response or I don't know. So I definitely had um, some legitimate nervous breakdowns. And there was a point where I was up in near San Francisco and Ossie was with me helping me or it was, she lives up there. So I went up there and she was kind of checking in on me. And then at one point it was literally, she was like, Amanda, you need to step away from the microphone. Like you are, <laughs> you are like you, your brain, you can't. And I'm like, I, I can't think anymore. Like it's my, and she's like, you can't, you just, you can't think right. anymore. Like you're done. Your, your brain is fried. And, um, and it, it was, um, we all need to <laughs> tell us that. <laughs> oh yeah. No, she, I can remember that. Like I went over to her. She's like, you need to come over to my house. Cause I was rent, I was staying in, um, I was staying at this little bed and breakfast. So I was just, I was, it was a bed, there was a bed in it and it was a small room and there was a little desk and that's where I was living and recording these things. And she's like, you, she's like, what are you doing when you're not rec- like, what have you been doing to, to take a break? And I was like, I've been watching law and order SVUs. And she's like, no, <laughs> like you're coming home. You're coming home to my house. Like, <laughs> Like, yeah, I haven't watched this in a long time. I'm like, those shows are really disturbing. I'm like, I think they bother me more than I have kids. And she's like, they were always disturbing, Amanda. Anyway, yes. So, um, so yes, that was a very challenging period, but it was also good. And like I said, it really, I really, really relied on my team who helped me through um, getting all that done and certainly writing the good, the questions that we have. I just feel like we have top notch questions and, we really make an effort to make them 
more challenging than when they get in the test so that when you get there, you know, you're prepped, but um, yeah, certainly then. And then obviously I think, I think a more, a more specific place that I would have that I felt like an imposter was certainly working as a therapist. And I, it's an interesting field where we, you know, right when we start and we're in school, we're already thrown into being an intern, which is kind of terrifying when you think about it, because we really don't know what we're doing at all. Right. But part of our, part of being good is to have put on an air of confidence, right? Like we're not going to go into a session and tell our clients, we have no idea what we're doing. Like, but tell me what's wrong. And I'm, you know, so that's part of the rub is that we, to be effective, we need to put on an air of confidence, which is by nature, not accurate to what we are actually skilled to do. So I, I do think that, um, that that's a very normal thing that we need to talk about more in the field. And I also feel really lucky to have discovered and, and um, put able to put resources into my training as a gestalt therapist, which I did 12 years of intensive training in gestalt therapy, which meant that I did these weekend. Um, it was a weekend training program that was six weekends a year uh, during kind of the school year calendar. And then uh, I also did um, seven or eight, eight day intensives that were actually up in Santa Barbara. And that's how I even kind of got to know the, get to know this area or gotten to know this area was because of those trainings. And in Gestalt therapy, you have, the trainers work in front of you with, as you know, with demonstrate pieces of work with people that are in the workshop uh, as real people. It's not role playing. You're seeing them do therapy with real people. And then you also, as a therapist work in front of the group or in small breakouts, they'll always, always great breakouts. So everybody always works as a therapist in front of other people. And, uh, and I just was, I was really drawn to Gestalt for a number of reasons, but I just love that piece of accountability and, and real transparency. A lot of these trainings that you go to, they, people just set up there and talk about what they do, but you don't see them do it. Um, and you don't certainly, and see, don't see them do it live. I mean, maybe, you know, Sue Johnson and these people, they give videos of themselves doing something with someone, but yeah, it's easy to do a highlight reel there's just something really powerful about seeing in, in real live time um, something amazing happen. That's just mm-hmm. never happened before with an interaction. And that's what blew me away with these trainers uh, with the Gestalt community with Lynn Jacobs and Gary Yontev and Friedemann Schultz and Jan Record who passed away and Lillian Norton, um, Frank Stemmler, Donna Orange, these people that are just um, really contributing to the field of humanistic therapy in a way that's really beautiful but that they're real real you know edges to them and they can sit down with anyone and and in 15 minutes just turn on a connection and dig deep and and get stuff i i it's it reminds me it's i don't know if people are you i don't know if you've seen the this the documentary on hbo called the vow but it's about the cult um nexium that was out in Albany recently and the guy just got in October of 2020 was sentenced the leader of it and his co-creator of the of the cult was actually a therapist and the techniques that they used in these like self-actualization and um, workshops and stuff for personal growth a lot of them were very similar to kind of stuff that you do in gestalt which which is basically that one thing, if people are truly vulnerable and someone knows what they're doing as a therapist and we can make a space where people open up and share stuff about their lives, I mean, that's hugely intimate. And the, and the mm-hmm. release that people feel and the 
the relief of kind of a burden being shared, right? Like we don't, we don't, mm-hmm. you don't really get, get rid of our burdens, but we, sh- we can have someone at least bear witness and share. Um, that's really powerful. And then you, if you add that to doing that in a group setting with other people, w- witnessing that, um, there is like a connection in a community that, that, that develops. And what's interesting with that vow, that movement, that the documentary, the value, how that's abused. And that's one of the things that I always really appreciated with the Gestalt community is the sensitivity that the leaders had uh, to that. And, um, and really, you know, they were seen as celebrities. I, I was 27 the first time I came up to the residential here. Um, I was the youngest one by 10 years and everybody else that had come to this training was coming from all over the world, really experienced trainers. And here I had no idea that these trainers that were teaching were so like were <laughs> over the world to see them. And here they were just people that taught them. So there's really these rich resources in our, um, our certainly down in California and LA, the Pacific Gestalt Institute is where they are still, um, you know, offering trainings and they, but what going to the imposter thing, you know, that really exposes that. And I think that thing that, that I is just the accountability and certainly the feedback from the instructors, because they don't tell you you've done a good job. You know, they, they tell, they are always looking at what you call, we call it like your growing edge. So they're always kind of looking at what you need to do next. And so when you ever did get positive feedback, you really felt like you earned it. Um, but for me, I was always really curious about the, you know, wanting to get better. And mm. I think that that's, that's the difference too. We, mentioned it last time we spoke about kind of my own personal decision to not just be a good person to be a better person and I think that that if you have that attitude in every area of your life it just really transforms your experience because you're looking for feedback you're looking to grow and that allows if you're true to that there is an inherent humility that has to go with it which is I don't know everything Mm -hmm. and so I think you know when we're starting out as therapists, you have to balance like a confidence. And I mean, what I, what I say, and I did, I did group supervision at Santa at Southern California counseling center is that what I'd want people to go into with a confidence of is a confidence of listening and understanding and connecting. And we all have that capacity. Obviously some people have to You're starting the main, I mean, the main, my opinion is the main thing that people want. And this would be supported in like the humanistic theories is that people want to be understood, really understood you know, not changed, you know, not improved, not judged, but just really, really understood. And mm. I loved that with Gestalt therapy, because it actually gave you the tools and stuff to really dig deep and also pay attention as your own person in the, in the room with someone, how you bring your own understanding of your own experience that's happening at the same time. Cool. And so yeah, sitting in front of other people and being a therapist is super, super nerve wracking. Uh, but it's the best way to kind of address that imposter syndrome is to actually get real feedback from people about what your strengths are and what areas you can grow on and then, and then work towards that. And sadly, I feel like that the problem in the field of, of psychotherapy is one, the training programs are really short and they vary in their, uh, you know, the, what they can cover. And then there isn't any kind of requirement after the fact, I mean, we have CEU requirements, right? But those are very unregulated and it's not clear what people are actually learning. And there's no way to really to change that. Um, but that's part of my interest at this point in my career is to come back and bring to the field, you know, the insights that I've learned that I think have, have made me, uh, uh, I mean, like for the Gestalt, one of the things I'd say, besides my jump shot in basketball, 
Which I, I can, can I, can I also just say the reason why that, that is the, the thing that I am most proud of is because I know how many hours it took to make that jump shot. And I'm, you know, I'm 46 years old and you give me a basketball and I can go out to the free, free point line. I just did it the other day with a friend and I made seven out of 10 shots and I, know yeah. I, was, and I was not in my good shooting clothes and I would do better. But um, I'm proud of that because I know how much time it went into getting that. And similarly, I became certified. I got certified with the Pacific Assault Institute after 12 years of training. And I wow. can say that as one of the most things I, as far as an academic experience, there's nothing that I'm more proud of than that because that you had to have, there was a written test, there was an oral exam and there was a, you had to do a live um, piece of work um, with an individual person, like with an individual person that was random. And you also had to facilitate a group process. And, and so um, it was in, in the, the, um, the written test was, you know, you had uh, two hours. I didn't have the questions in advance. I had to, they were asked me anything and I had to write essays and turn them in. And, and similarly, I didn't have any context of what they were going to ask me. So I, I've had to know my stuff and I, and I, it felt, it felt well-earned and deserved when I got that sense of accomplishment. So that definitely alleviated, but that being said, um, even after that, when I started to because I did a lot of Gestalt training before I ever actually went into private practice. And up until that point, I was doing more so very social work stuff in the field with home visits and psychoeducation and working uh, for a bulk of my time after I got licensed. Anyway, I worked in, um, did home visits in, in, in West, the West side for families that were referred by DP, DCFS as the highest risk for having their kids removed. So the kids had not been removed but we were doing that um, that high intense high intensity intervention to try to keep, you know, try to support the families through therapy and connection to resources to be able to keep their kids at home because we know that it doesn't usually happen out of the blue. People that when when things happen to kids, it's there's usually been multiple reports before. So we were I was working with that population. So it, and that just felt different, you know, because it was it was different. It was more social work as opposed to psychotherapy pure psychotherapy. So when I, when I actually opened my private practice, I had had at least eight years of Gestalt training and I still felt like an imposter. I still kind of felt like I can't believe people are paying me this much money to talk to them. Um, and I definitely had moments, which is also what inspires me to do the CEU stuff in particular, where I had in a given one week, in one week, I had three different clients with varying levels of suicidal ideation. And I drove home and I parked on the side of the road and I started banging on my wheel saying to myself, this is why I didn't go to med school. I did not want people's lives in my hands. This is why I didn't go to med school. I didn't want people's lives in my hands. And at the time I was in a uh, supervision group that I had organized myself because I wanted it to happen. That's what I do in life. If there's something that I want for myself, I just like organize it for a bunch of people, then I can enjoy it too. So I reached out to Gary Yontif and I was like, would you do a, would you run a, like a pure consultation group? Um, and he's like, if you organize it, sure. And so I was like, well, what day are you available? He goes, here. And so then I like reached out and I got, I don't know, six or seven people. And we had this weekly, weekly, weekly or every other week I can't remember but anyway we had this consultation group which I just have to say if people are in private practice and this is interesting to me is that in in the UK they don't have the CEU requirement what they have in the UK is that if you are doing psychotherapy you have to be receiving supervision it can be even if you're licensed it can be group supervision or individual supervision but you have to continue to get supervision and I feel like that's something we should really consider pushing for in California, because 
you need someone else to bounce stuff off of. You just do. And yes. if it was actually part of a marketplace thing where, where people could get it out, like let's say you're in private practice, then you could pick your supervisor, right? Or you could pick your consultation group. The thing in two in the UK is that people would form their own peer, peer supervision group. So you could p- do something where you didn't have to pay. But ideally what would happen here is that people that were, were known to be good therapists, you know, good supervisors could start to have that be part of their practice and could, you know, someone that wants to get better and has imposter feeling like an imposter could go get supervision from those very people who are really good, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, and cause CEUs, there's no accountability with CEUs. Right. And I guarantee you that a lot of like, when you look at the um, things that people get in trouble for with the BBS with ethical violations or legal violations, I would, I would say that you probably have the half those if, um, and those are just ones we know about. But you'd you'd see a, a reduction in those if there was um, a requirement to get ongoing supervision. I mean, even if it was every other month, you know, every other, you know, one hour for 20 clients or whatever. But mm-hmm. um, this consultation group, you know, I remember going to, you know, I don't know if I called Gary at the time or if I went to the next group and I was just like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like these people, I might be suicidal. I don't know. What and he was just like, he's like, calm down you totally know what you're doing. Like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, Oh, you know? And so we just like talked through stuff and, but what it really highlighted to me was, wow, I don't feel like I got very good training in suicide management. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the, that is one of the, the um, courses that I'm working on already and plan to put out is around suicide um, management and specifically around the, the, the around the clinicals, the clinician's experience of managing it. Cause it's intense. Yeah. So it's an intense thing and it doesn't get talked about very much. And it's shocking to me just recently they changed it. So now this six hours is required for California, but it's really ridiculous that we had like an HIV requirement, but we didn't have a suicide requirement. Right. You know? Um, and it's like an EMT, not knowing CPR. It just doesn't make any sense. So, uh, you know, we talked just kind of transitioning into you, what you brought up last time as far as topics for this time is, you know, the CEU thing that we're putting out is really based on uh, my own experience of what I feel like was what, what has been good, the kind of training and information and the, the tidbits and um, um, lessons and articles and, you know, things that I've read and things that I've learned from these top people um, along with my own experience and development, what's been really, you know, nurturing and um, helpful. And then also these areas where I was like, wow, I didn't get training in this. And I was thinking, you know, here I am someone who's had eight years of Gestalt training and therapy and am in a consult consultation group with really skilled clinicians and an awesome, you know, world renowned Gestalt trainer. And I'm freaking out. How does the average person who didn't ever have any kind of training and didn't have, you know, didn't have, doesn't have a support. I mean, I, I, I had, I think I even called like three different of my therapist friends. I had, I had a bunch of people that were, I really respected as therapists that I could call and immediately consult with and make sure that I felt like I, what I did was right, was right. And I, and they all, you know, assured me of that, but a lot of people don't have that. And I think um, that's one of the things I, I really am going to be with TDC um creating a course around creating a peer supervision group um, and what that means and kind of a commitment to certainly holding each other accountable, but also, you know, alleviating that, that imposter syndrome, because yeah, I mean, there's going to be, 
when you talk about the, the ethical aspect of scope of competence, we're not, we're not competent in most things. It takes mm -hmm. a long time to become an expert in anything. And I had a client once that came in and she was her main thing. She was complaining of really bad anxiety. So then when I did like the biopsychosocial assessment on her and she shared that she was suffering from insomnia where she would wake up at three in the morning and not go back to sleep. And it had started, I don't know, 10 years before, whenever the Cal, Cal, the North Northridge earthquake, she'd had it for like a decade. And oh, wow. it was, a and, and she, and she was, it, it was clear to me that all of her symptoms while they were looked like anxiety were related to her insomnia. Mm -hmm. And she's like, can you help me? And I go, well, I just want to be honest. I, I have not treated insomnia at this level before. Um, and I could feel like I can do some stuff with you to manage this other, you know, these, these kind of symptoms, but it seems like it's really linked to the insomnia and until you get that. In, and and I, I had a really great acupuncturist down in Santa Monica named Lori Binder. And I called her and I said, I have this client, like, what do you think about, you know, cause I'm, I'm very interested in alternate treatments of things um, besides just the Western medical model. And she's like, Oh yeah, like that's liberty and liberty and balance and blah, blah, blah. And so I suggested to this girl, like you, you know, here, here's my acupuncturist name. Like, why don't you go and see, cause she tried, she didn't want to take meds. You know, they want to give you sleeping pills and all that stuff. And those mm -hmm. are dangerous. Yep. And she went, um, she had two sessions of acupuncture and she counts, she came the next time she'd had one and it had made some help. She had one treatment and she slept better and she felt better. She had a second treatment and then she canceled and she called and canceled her next appointment and was like, Oh, I'm better. I'm totally fine. Wow. I have no more anxiety. I know. Yeah. So, um, but that, you know, I think that that's important when you're in, when, when you're in certainly in, you know, if you're in an agent, well, and I also remember one time I, when I was supervising, I was supervising at Southern California Counseling Center and one of the people that I was supervising, they gave them a case where the person had Asperger's and was struggling with severe depression and had Asperger's. And I had, I'd had no background with Asperger's. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I just, I told the, I told the client and the, and, and my, my trainee was anxious about it, you know, and we were kind of doing so. And I, I go, you know what, I need to talk to the director because I, I can't supervise this case. I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm, and I'm even once removed, like I would feel more comfortable if I was the one doing the, the therapy because I would have sought outside consultation. Um, if I was actually going to take that case, right. But as a supervisor, you know, I wasn't, I didn't have the capacity to do that. And I was once removed and I felt like I couldn't insure it. And I just went to the, the director and I said, I can't, I can't supervise this case. So you need to find someone else that has a background in it, or I mean, I don't know what they ended up doing, but I was like, I'm not going to have this. So I think it's important for people with the imposter syndrome to, 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 to actually do a, a real, um, and this is where it helps to have people to check in with is to really do a check and say, you know, is this, you know, imposter is when you're pretending to be something that you're not. So as long as you take responsibility for what you do and don't know, and take the actions that you need to, to ensure that you're competent, you're not an imposter, but if you pretend like you can do it when you can't, then you are an imposter. So do I think that there are actually therapists out there that are imposters? Absolutely. There absolutely are. And, um, unfortunately, but that's part of the culture and it just kind of gets passed down. It gets passed down to therapists who are promoted to supervisors just because they get licensed and they don't actually, you know, really know what they're doing and they've got never gotten good supervision, um, to know, you know, how to be a good supervisor. 
So it is it is uh, an interesting thing to 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 discuss and tease out. Um, but certainly, I can say this: nobody becomes a therapist wanting to be a bad therapist. Everybody right. who decided to be a therapist wanted to help people and wants to make a difference and and do that. And I think that um, there's a lot of things I hope to contribute to the field that allows for um, better supervision, you know, better um, processing of, um, I mean, it's a lot when people come to us with their suffering and we are in a position where we're expected and we want to help them feel better. Um, mm-hmm. That's a big responsibility. I mean, we're, we're obviously have a legal um, obligation to them. We have an ethical obligation to them, but the personal obligation that we make, I mean, I, when I did home sits, I only had at the most, I think, just because we, I had the time allocation of driving and spending, it was more intensive treatment, but I think I only had eight clients. And then when I had private practice, I really limited my private practice to the most 10, 10 people. I never wanted to do 10, uh, more than 10 hours a week. Cause I just felt like emotionally, I couldn't hold any more people like that than that. And yeah. it just amazes me people that are turn, you know, seeing like 20, 30 clients a week. That, that's a, that is an emotional toll. Yeah. I know it there is was an emotional time- toll. There was a time where they wanted me to see eight to 10 people a day and oh do my God. for depression. No, and it's irresponsible. I, yeah, it's just, it's not, it's not sustainable. And, you know, to be honest, a lot of the caseloads that new social workers or social workers in general have, I think they're not sustainable. They're not realistic. And then we start feeling or doubting ourselves like, oh, other people are doing this. This is the industry standard. What's wrong with me? Yeah. But it's nothing, it's nothing wrong with you. It's the industry that has these unrealistic expectations of the work that we can effectively do. Yeah. And, and I think that um, social work in a lot of stuff has moved towards kind of best practice models, which move more towards manualized treatment, which is more about affecting change at an individual level. And I think that we need to, you know, first as a profession, start to cultivate more communities of learning and support with peer support consultation groups, but also recognize how important that is for our clients that we have to, a lot of them are socially isolated. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them, even if they're not socially isolated, don't have good relationships good functioning relationships in their lives, which means that there's probably some that could be improved that they could lean on, but that also there needs to be, I think, if we want to make radical change in the field of mental health care, that is going to, you know, stymie that the shift of the downward trajectory where we're headed, certainly with COVID. I mean, I think COVID is a great example of where we see the impact of social isolation. The problem is, is that that we've been headed that way before COVID. COVID just is like a wake up call, like, oh, wait, this really affects people if they don't interact. Well, what's weird is I think COVID is going to have people, more people work from home, which is going to now limit main, people's main source of social support that was left standing, which was the workplace. And obviously there's pros to working from home. Certainly if you have kids, it can be better. But ultimately we're social creatures and we're meant to be part of community. And it's our, it's our, our, it's our engagement in community that gives us meaning and purpose. And let this feel like we matter. And at a fundamental level, that's what we want and need. And so I think that um, certainly as a, from a field of social, social work and our, um, our ability and, and the value we place on you know, looking at things from, you know, micro um, and macro level that, that we have to start to, as therapists that work at the lower levels, or not, you know, at the individual level, start to have discussions about 
you know, ways that we can start to create a bigger social fiber. Like I, a great example, I started, a, I feel like we need to, we need to, one of the things I'm going to be putting out as a CEUs in the next coming, in the coming year is stuff around group work. I feel like um, we need to, there was a time when group work was very prevalent and popular. And that was, you know, back with Gestalt certainly in, in that movement. And, um, and we've moved and, it, and it's a very effective treatment in, inpatient, right. And people that are in hospitals, they all have group, um, you go to groups and, um, and certainly in AA, like that is like, I was just talking to a friend, AA, you know, it's A is the most successful substance abuse treatment model there is, there's nothing else that comes close. Mm-hmm. And, um, as far as effect cost effectiveness, it's free. Right. Right. Um, but it's also just highly effective. I mean, it doesn't work for everyone. It does not work for everyone, but the thing is, is now in, in, within the AA community, I feel like there's such a range of um, approaches that allow for people that may have an issue with the spirituality or component. But I was also needed to add is Weight Watchers. Weight Watchers is similarly a highly effective weight loss program. Both of them are about community. Both of them are about having meetings available where people can show up and be with other people who are struggling with the same thing. And there is such a power in that. And it really is the fact of the matter that, you know, when you show up and other people have showed up just by them showing up, it means you matter too. Like everyone matters. There's no group if no one shows up. That's what I always say to myself when I'm mad at, when I'm mad at traffic and I'm sitting in traffic, I always say, you're part of the problem. You're part of the problem. You're one of the cars <laughs> on the road. You're part of the problem. Chill out, Amanda. You're part of the problem. People don't like it when I'm in the car and they're like, oh, traffic, traffic. I have this one friend. It's so funny. She's like super nice all the time, except in traffic. In traffic, I'm like, you have the devil inside of you. And I had no idea. And one time I said to her, I was like, you know, we're part of the problem. And she's like, Rawr! I'm like, whoa, okay. Didn't just, didn't say that. Didn't say that. We are victims. We are so victims right now of this traffic. Um, so yeah, I, I, um, I'm excited. I have an awesome team. Like I said, my coaches are, I said last time my coaches, and then I have um, some great people on my team, Lindsay and Todd. Um, Todd's came with experience in kind of marketing and community relations and, and partnering with um, different groups too figure out what they need as far as CEUs. And then um, my sister-in-law, Lindsay came on board. She had a production, um, worked in Hollywood production. So she's working with me to help get organized to um, push out some good CEUs and then also bring in other experts and stuff to create CEUs based on people that I've experienced that I had with them. So I'm excited. We, we have a really great HIV course, which I recommend everyone taking, even if they've already taken HIV, if they're looking for something good, because she worked in the field. She worked at the hosp- very first hospital in Minnesota where, when HIV was discovered and when they were first um, dealing with it as a health crisis. And there's just so many similarities with any kind of um, disease, including, including COVID, but any kind of disease where there's going to be there's stigma i mean mm-hmm. once somebody has a disease there's you have it or you don't dynamic and then you also have the cr- management of a chronic disease which i think with covid sadly we're probably going to we've already hearing that we are going to have like some people have these ongoing health issues so um but one thing i want to say about my ceus that i'm very very excited about is that 30 percent of our of the proceeds of the ceus are going to go to fund a uh, foundation that I'm starting called the Sadaka Foundation, and Sadaka is, is. Sorry, I'm still not sure about that. Uh-oh, something just <laughs> happened. I love when I never use Alexa. I never use Siri. Is that who it is? I don't know. I'm like Alexa. I never use Siri, and I think she gets annoyed at me because she'll just interrupt me, and I'm like, oh, I get it. You want attention? Sorry, Siri. No, whoever it's it's Siri, right? Yeah, it's Siri on my phone. Um, so what I was saying is, yes, I'm starting. I when I first started my company and it started to take off, 
I felt really uncomfortable with how much money I was making. I grew up with a teacher, like I said last time, my dad, my dad was a teacher. My mom was a school nurse. We were just solidly middle class, drove used cars, saved up for vacations in three-star hotels. So it was, it was, and I kind of grew up with this attitude that rich people were assholes. I mean, that's kind <laughs> of what, what I think it helps you cope when you are buying used cars. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But when I became, when I started to make money, I was like, felt uncomfortable with it. And it, and it does give me some discomfort, even though now I'm certainly can't lie that it, it does. It is nice um, mm-hmm. to, to not, not sure be stressed about money. I don't know why it's doing that. Oh, I think it's my watch. I don't know. Um, so anyway, I kind of made a commitment to the universe or God or whatever that once I kind of got, once I got to a threshold of my profits that I wanted to make sure that I started giving back. So I have given a lot on my own to different groups that I am passionate about um, since the start of TDC. And we have a code that we have social justice codes that we give to groups. But um, what I really, my passion and where I want to go, I think with my life now is to actually start a foundation where I give more specifically to projects um, and innovations that that I think are overlooked are, or because of our system of bureaucracy and, you know, this kind of um, bowing down to evidence-based methods that I think are deeply flawed and how they come to their conclusions with the research that they base it off of. Um, It's in the works of starting this, what's called the Sadaka Foundation. So Sadaka means justice. In Hebrew, it also means charity. And in, in, and it's a concept that is basically like not is where we think of charity of like, oh, it's an option. But in Judaism, it's basically a, a demand. It's a mitzvah. It's like, no, you you give back. And there is part of it was you give 2% of your farmlands, you know, 2% of the fruits of your labor should go to the poor. And um, so when we launch these CEUs, 30% of the proceeds are going to go to my Sadaka Foundation. And the Sadaka Foundation is going to be funding innovations in mental health promotion. So looking at ways in which um, communities, very targeted giving, that's community driven um, solutions, you know, that come from the community itself. And a good friend of mine that we met actually, I mentioned last time when I worked at the Needle Exchange in Venice, she also, she ran it. Her name is Deanna Andrade and she's this little pipsqueak from Spain. I keep forgetting that we're getting older because she's still very much. Anyway, she's so cute. She lives in Switzerland now. She She's from Spain and she um, she's so funny because the very first time we went to dinner and I call her my first friend because I feel like I went through college and I had friends and here and that, but I never felt like someone I had this really authentic um, friendship with where I could just be fully who I was and not have it be, you know, some people can't tolerate you being sad or anxious or whatever. Yeah. And she, we, we connected and um, we went to dinner. I took her to dinner for her birthday because we both had just started working at the place and we didn't really know anyone. And I knew she said something about it being her birthday the next day. I was like, let's go to dinner. So we went to dinner in this little restaurant in, on the lower main street of Santa Monica. And I remember I was asking her, like, what are her life dreams? And she said, I want to adopt babies from Africa. And I was like, wow, like, that's impressive. Well, she has. She has two beautiful children um, that she adopted from two brothers that she adopted from Uganda. And she um, lives in Switzerland. And yeah, can uh, you hear me? Sorry, my phone rang, and so I and I'm gonna d- d- oh, disturb. So she um yeah. she she's a she's now a mom of 
a four-year-old and a two-year-old and I it's just so fun to be past that stage <laughs> I'm so mean yes. <laughs> I'm like I remember the stage where you used to have to ask this little person for permission to go to the bathroom and talk on the phone <laughs> <laughs> yes. and her oldest son Omara he's like I want to he came on the phone he's like I want to hear your voice I want to hear my mom's boss's voice and I was like oh hi and he's like when are you going to come visit? And I said, oh, I'm going to come in the summer. And he goes, oh, no, you need to come on Thursday. And I was like, yeah, okay, I'm coming Thursday. <laughs> I'm like, I just love little kids, little logic. So anyway, she um, she is has her master's in human rights and um, and is similarly passionate, has done a lot of work in Africa. So it's going to be, an, we're going to have an international um, we're going to give international, locally and I mean, in the U.S. and internationally and and um, putting together people in my life that I have collected along the way that have various um, levels of expertise, but, you know, really hoping to um, figure out unique solutions. Like one of the, one of the ideas that I had based on knowing this, um, this friend that I met named Yossi Nope, who is Israeli, and he um, went in and into these towns and stuff and helped to build basketball courts um, for the community and provided basketball and how it transformed the community to have this fun activity that you know, we live in the state. We have those kind of things here that a lot of times aren't even used because we just take them for granted. But in these communities where he went in and did that and then helped organize basketball leagues and all the stuff. And remember meeting him and him, I have a passion I mentioned already with my jump shot for basketball and um, somehow that came up and he told me about that idea. And I was like, wow, I mean, that's the kind of thing that raises, you know, promotes mental health in a community, um, a place where people can gather and enjoy each other and be physically active. And, and it's these kind of things like that, that are actually like not that expensive of investments in a community, but that with the right support can actually really transform it. So that's the kind of thing that I'm, that I'm hoping we will, I humbly hope that we will accomplish, um, going forward but i'm definitely excited to to let people know that those ceus when they buy them with tdc they are um they are paying it forward literally um with their with their investment in their own professional professional development so i know we're getting um close to your time yeah, of ending i don't know if there's anything else you want to ask about no, that's amazing, Amanda. I mean, just hearing you talk and your story and all of the things that you've accomplished and the business that you built, me starting out, I feel like I'm a, I'm a newbie compared to you. So me starting out on my business journey and entrepreneurship and doing my small part to, you know, help shift this industry, it is really inspiring to hear your story because it just reminds me that I'm just getting started and to be patient with myself and that all things will happen. Um, so just I thank you for for sharing your story. I did have uh, two questions. One is, does it take 12 years to get certified in Gestalt theory? It, uh, it I mean, it would va it varies with from person to person. Um, I would say like, it's not a cookie cutter approach. They don't have because it really is this thing where you're ready when you're ready. Um, and very few people actually, very few people who start doing the trainings ever get certified because um, they're, I, I, would, I would say like the fastest you could possibly do it would be in two years because okay. you also have to do a certain number of hours of individual therapy with therapists. Um, but 
I think the people that are really committed to it and want to get certified really recognize that it's, you don't do it till you feel ready. Mm. And, um, I probably could have gone for certification earlier. It just wasn't something that was important to me. I felt, you know, I was, I was a goal that I had, but I, it wasn't until that point where I had the time to actually put to prepping for it the way that I needed to, as far as, you know, actually reviewing all the reading and feeling competent to take those exams. It was, it was, you know, it was a lot, but, um, it's, I mean, the, when you do the gestalt trainings, a lot of people do them without ever getting certified. So, and you and get, obviously get a lot out of them. For mm-hmm. me, it was just a, it was something that I was an achievement that I, um, realized pretty early on that if I got certified, it would be something that I was really proud of. And, you know, I, I got certified in Gottman's bringing baby home, which was, you know, go up there and do the, I mean, it was like a joke. I mean, it was not, it wasn't a joke, but compared to you know, there's some people have certifications. Um, I liked that this was a certification really based on a reflection of, did you have this mastery and they have a high bar um, mm-hmm. for, for mastery, which um, I think is good. I wanted to say to you, Catherine, I don't know if you've, you know, know about this, but when it, how important setting goals are for yourself as far as um, I'm going away in a couple of weeks with a friend who's coming to work for me to help with the CEUs and we're doing um, basically like a mini strategic planning and putting the goals out for the next five years and then the next, and then breaking that down. And that's a really important thing for people to do. And I've done it many times in my life is, you know, you, you just sitting down by yourself and saying, okay, in five years from now, what do I want to have accomplished? Like, what's a reasonable thing for me to have done? What do I see myself? Maybe it's, maybe you have a private practice and you say, okay, I'm seeing an average of 10 people at an average of $150 an hour. Like you write that down, you know, maybe I'm super supervising someone, you know, maybe I've written a book, maybe I've, you know, now I'm, you know, a guest lecture, I'm a, you know, an, an instructor at whatever the thing is, like really put down what you want, like what, what do you want to have accomplished professionally in the next five years? And and then you start breaking that down and you say, okay, well, if I have these five things, what do I need to do in the next year to work towards those goals? And each one tease that out and put that and then put it on a piece of paper and put it in your purse and carry it around with you. I mean, in research, like this has been studied, like this is how people get things accomplished. You know, you have to really, you, and you, you maybe you share it with other people, um, but not in a way that would be like sharing it on social media where then you feel like embarrassed that you haven't gotten those things done, but maybe it's just someone that's like you have a good close relationship with that. You're just like, this is what I'm working towards. This is what I'm excited about. And that's also where those kind of peer support groups can be really helpful because people can, can share those, but you know, you you only get somewhere you want to get if you know where you want to go. And Mm -hmm. um, very few people do that. And certainly in the field of social work, and therapy, we're so focused on helping other people um, get better and accomplish our goals, their, their goals, not our goals, that'd be nice. But um, there are, you know, that we, we miss the, how important it is to, um, you, we, we talk about that, you know, I'm sure you've heard like man, manifest things, manifesting, man, manifesting. I mean, really manifestation is, 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 is goal setting. It's just actually saying to the universe what you want to have accomplished. And that's a very powerful act. And something that most people don't do. Um, but aside from the, you know, spirituality component from that, whether you believe in that or not, 
just the act of like taking the time to sit down and write those goals out. And, you know, every so often you can come back and maybe some of those goals change and some of those goals should, should be non-professional. Right. I mean, I, I definitely at some point in my life said, you know what, I want to add at least a new friend to my life every, I mean, when I moved up to Santa Barbara and I didn't know anybody and it was really hard. And I was like, okay, I'm going to make a goal of making, trying to make one new friend a month and invite that person out and like make an effort to get to know people. I mean, the friends that I have today after being here seven years are all pretty much different than the ones I first started out with. But a big reason is, is because I kept adding new people and then I just like, you know, <laughs> replace the bad ones. Right. <laughs> <It's> so awful, <laughs> but it's true. <laughs> so, um, so yes, I think, I think it's amazing that you've created this podcast that just shows your initiative. And that's a really powerful, um, gift to have initiative um and and so you doing this is really exciting and you know at some point if you ever want to chat off again on the podcast if you want or off podcast i'd be i love to chat with people about um stuff especially when i'm out walking and getting exercise so yeah yeah i love that thank you so much amanda you always have a spot or two or three however many episodes you want <laughs> Honestly, yeah, well, just reach out. We'll, we'll, I'll be, and when we launch, yeah, anytime we launch new, new CEUs, I'd love to come share them with you and the excitement. And I think we're our goal, our goal is also to just put a lot of stuff out for free. And then if people could, you know, people can get the knowledge. And if they want to go take the post test, they can take the post test and pay for the CEUs. But it's weird to me that we, we have a, I feel like there should, it should be a field where we, people can get, you know, access to information without having to certainly therapists don't have the resources always. And it's like, why aren't we making more of this stuff just available? Definitely. Definitely. Well, thank you so much, Amanda. I really, really appreciate your time. And it was a pleasure having you on the Social Workers Rise podcast. Thank you, Catherine. Have a great day. You too. Um, I'll call you um, just a debrief for like a couple minutes. Okay. Okay, cool. Bye. Okay, bye. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Social Workers Rise. If this episode helped you, please help me spread the word by leaving a review wherever you listen to your podcast and share that you're listening. Tag me on social media. I love it. I will repost and reshare. I love it. Social currency is free, but it is so valuable. Also, I'd love to hear from you on Instagram. I really do respond. I really do love it when you give me your feedback. Lastly, this is not therapeutic advice or business advice or any other kind of personalized advice. To get that, you definitely need me as your coach. So please, again, reach out to me on Instagram. I can't wait till next week. I will see you then. All the love. Bye.